And there ends the reading Revelation chapter 1. Now before beginning this series of studies in the book of Revelation, and I want to emphasize that preposition uh, in, because it's not through the book. I'm not going to go through every chapter and every verse of the book of Revelation. Uh, but I'm going to be doing some studies in it, and we're beginning with chapter 1. And you see the title, Total Victory. Before I go any further, I think it's important to put out for the general understanding that the subject of this book and so-called end times prophecies, and let's stay with the more technical theological term eschatology, the study of last things, is a controversial one. And because... We do not have infallible, inerrant interpretations of Scripture. Holy Scripture itself is infallible and without error. It's inerrant or inerrant. But our interpretations are not. And that's one reason why right-thinking Christians of all types from every walk have understood that one's views on eschatology do not determine whether or not you are a true believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. Having said that, it may well determine what type of follower you are or will be, and how well you're able to follow the teachings of Jesus and the message of the kingdom. And I'm going to hang my hat on one particular view of this book, as you will see, and most of you, I think, would agree with it, but I want to make this very clear. I understand quite well that all of the different views of the book of Revelation, the views of eschatology, eschatology have their limitations. There is not one, including the one I'm going to be basically advocating, that is without some shortcomings. Having said that, some of these different schools of thought have far more shortcomings than the others. So I think at least one goal that we ought to have is following an interpretation of this book that is consistent with biblical teaching and makes sense in the larger picture of what God is doing in Christ and in the issue of kingdom history. All right. Having said that, let me tell you that somebody <clears throat> once wrote that the two books the devil hates the most are the book of Genesis that we've just finished our studies in and this book of Revelation we're starting to study in. You know why? Because in Genesis, the devil is given a death sentence. You heard that this morning in the Old Testament reading. But now in the book of Revelation, we are reading Satan's obituary. Friends, do you realize... That there's no Satan, there's no devil mentioned in either the first two chapters of the book of the Bible or the final two chapters of the book of the Holy Scriptures. You ever thought about that? Not surprisingly, some of the most vicious satanic attacks have been aimed at these two books, Genesis and Revelation. Satan's followers would have us believe that the book of Genesis, for example, is all a book full of myths and fables, and the book of Revelation is pretty close to the same thing, but its big problem is it's so mysterious and full of symbolism, you can't begin to understand it. And it certainly has no application to today and didn't mean anything then. Dr. R.J. Rushdoony wrote concerning his own studies in Revelation, and I'm quoting him. He said, Revelation gives us man's victory in Christ over sin and death. He said, we may err in our interpretations of many details, and Revelation is full of difficult texts but it is even more full of the assurance of victory. He said, we are not given a Messiah who is a loser. The eschatological texts make clear that the essential good news of the entire Bible, 
and especially revelation, is victory. Total victory. Over a hundred years ago, the great church historian Philip Schaff famously wrote concerning the book of Revelation. He said, the literature of the apocalypse, that is this book, especially in English, is immense, but it is mostly, and I'm paraphrasing what he wrote here, uh, writers imposing their meaning on the text rather than expository, and hence it's worthless and even mischievous. End of quote. I think there's probably no better example in my recent memory of the accuracy of what Schaff wrote than the example of a man that a few of you may have heard of or may remember named Edgar C. Wisenant, W-H-I-S-E-N-A-N-T, Wisenant. Now, Wisenant, who died in the year 2001, he was a NASA engineer. And he assumed that he had as much understanding of the Bible as he did engineering. And parenthetically, I may add, this is not the first time an engineer has had that idea and led people down the wrong path. But he self-published a book that sold over six million copies. And it caused quite a stir among evangelicals in the summer and fall of 1988. I remember this book quite well. It was before I went to seminary. And... Just before I went to seminary, my wife was working at the time at a crisis pregnancy center, and it was staffed by more than a few people who were bent toward the Bible church dispensational way of thinking, and they got hold of this. It was really a booklet, not a book, as I recall, and they went crazy. Everybody was in a dither about the accuracy of this man's book, because he believed, and what he said in that book is that he had conclusively demonstrated why Christ would definitely return to the earth in September of 1988. Various news reports noted that a number of Christians took his message so seriously that they quit their jobs in anticipation of Christ's imminent return. That's certainly not the first time something like that's happened in the past three or four hundred years. One pastor I know of said that he, around that time, called a, a fairly well-known Christian bookseller, book outlet, and he was told in the recorded message that the employees had taken the day off to spend with their families before the Lord returned. Well, I can imagine that those employees all came back rather disappointed when Jesus didn't show up. Now, Wizenet's book and the frenzied excitement that it produced among American evangelicals is not the only and certainly not the first example of that sort of thing. Because There are modern-day religious groups, some people call them cults, I think that's the wrong term, I think they promote false doctrines, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and many other such last-days groups came into existence over this very thing, this frenzy as it was in the 19th century. And as books and films such as the now largely forgotten, thank goodness, left behind series show, the frenzy has continued right up into the 20th and 21st centuries. And it does that because modern misconceptions about the purpose of the prophetic visions in the events in Revelation are so prevalent. And also misconceptions about the time frame for the occurrences of these things. Now the confusion over the meaning of this book is especially ironic, and I say that because the purpose of the book of Revelation, as evidenced in the name Apocalyptus, which means to reveal, it means to conceal. It doesn't, it doesn't mean to conceal or to confuse, it means to reveal something. And the book of Revelation is 
in a profound sense, the most biblical book in the Bible. What I mean by that is that John, the author, quotes hundreds of passages from the Old Testament in this book. And he also does it with sort of a, a nod of the head, in a manner of speaking, a hint at some of the religious rituals and practices of the ancient Hebrew people. Now, as we begin some of these studies through this book, here at the beginning, I want to mention a few things, including I'll start off with three questions that I think we need to think about and require our consideration. For example, when was this book written? Now, I believe there is significant evidence that the book was written in the late 600s A.D., before the fall of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, there are other solid, respectable, scholarly, reformed teachers, pastors, who disagree with that date and say, no, no, it was written in A.D. 96 during the reign of the emperor Domitian rather than A.D. 60 in the reign of the emperor Nero. These things become important, but I just want to let you know there is disagreement on that point. But there are two other questions that we need to consider right along with when it was written, and that is, what is the proper approach to understanding this book? And then also, what is the theme of the book? To put those two questions another way, we can ask, was the book of Revelation written to us right now in the late 21st or early 21st century or to the people of the first century AD? So if we understand that the book was written before AD 70, then that has a lot to do with how we answer these two questions, or those two questions in particular. And so let's go back. What is the proper approach to this book? Now, there are several methods that have been applied to this book throughout the centuries. I sort of alluded to that at the very beginning. None of them are ironclad. None of them are infallible, including the one I'm going to be advocating. So for our purposes, I just want to mention two of them. The futurist view and the preterist view. Now, folks here at Reedy River are generally familiar with those, both of those views, especially the latter. But those methods provide very, very different interpretations of the book of Revelation as a whole. So let's take a brief statement about the futurist view. So according, according to the futurist view, the book of Revelation, the prophecies of Revelation, they are set in the distant future from the time that John wrote them, far distant future. Now, that is the most popular view today, mainly because of the influence of Schofield Reference Bible Dispensationalism. I think that most of us here today know that dispensationalism is a theological method that only came into being about 175 years ago. Now, that ought to give, I mention this because that ought to give you pause to think. Now, there, there are little bits and pieces of dispensational teaching that can be found throughout church history. And I, I want to emphasize very small bits and pieces. But the main thing that characterizes the, the system was non-existent for almost 2,000 years of church history. That ought to be a, a raising of the eyebrows right there. But let me remind you that one of the two fundamental dispensational teachings is this, that God has two differing peoples Israel and the church who have differing promises, different destinies, and different purposes. That is one of the main distinctives of the error of dispensational teaching. They divide, they completely separate the old covenant church from the new covenant church. There's no connection whatsoever between them, they say. That is one of their main distinctives. And the other 
is their view of this book of Revelation and so-called end times. They teach that someday soon, and you can go back to the very first publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, and it was soon back then. It's always soon for these dear folks. Christ will return to the earth. But he does it, first of all, invisibly, to sort of in a flash of lightning, I don't know, there's different ways they describe it, to take away all the Christians off the face of the earth. That's the event they call the rapture. And that was the main subject of Edgar Wissonnet's book in the fall of 1988, his ill-fated book. See, these people claim that then after God has removed the church of Jesus Christ from the earth, he will go back to, as they put it, dealing with Israel. Now that's a big deal for them because, you see, they don't believe the church of Jesus Christ was originally part of God's plan. Can you imagine that? No, their whole idea is that God was only concerned with the people who call themselves today the Jews. And so therefore, when the people who call themselves Jews in the days of Jesus rejected him and crucified him, well, that kind of threw God back on his heels, so to speak, and he had to come up with another plan. He had to come up with a plan B, and that plan B was the church. And then he has to come up with this elaborate scheme, nicely provided to Almighty God by our dispensational friends, where he had to get back to dealing with the Jews, because those are the main focus. In this scheme, God really isn't that concerned about Gentiles, non-Jews. It's only the Jews that he's concerned with. So they claim that after the church is taken off the face of the earth, there will be a seven-year period of absolute dis tribulation and evil. And although many Jews will become saved and turn to Christ as their Messiah... Uh, again, uh, this is something I'll throw in there. If they do that, they're no longer Jews, they're Christians, so I don't know how they get around that. But the other thing is, there will be millions of them who will be slaughtered during that seven-year tribulation period. But at the end of that tribulation period, to sort of save the day, Jesus Christ will literally, physically, return to this earth, and he will initiate a literal 1,000-year millennium, where he will physically return and reign as king sitting on a throne in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Now those ideas have been immensely popular and influential within the living memory of most of us in this room. But it is vitally important for us to realize that those ideas have no roots whatsoever in historic Christian interpretation of the Bible. Now variations and forms of this view have been held by some religious groups for whom the end times is one of the major things that brought them into existence. I mentioned it a few moments ago. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and there's some Pentecostal groups. All right, so that's the summary of the futurist view. As I said, most of us have heard this view about it before, and you probably know a lot of people who believe it. But then secondly, the preterist view. So the preterist understands that most all of the prophecies, not all of them, but most of them, have already been fulfilled. According to this view, we are now in the new heaven and the new earth referred to in Revelations 21 and 22. So now that means obviously that preterists don't believe that the new heaven and new earth refers to a literal physical utopia. No, instead, they say that the book of Revelation is speaking of a spiritual reality. Now, there's two sides to this. There's a spiritual side and there is a literal side. But right now, I'm telling you that the images and the symbols in this book are not typically, not typically meant to be taken literally, but figuratively or spiritually. On the other hand, listen carefully. On the other hand, the book of Revelation does speak 
to real, literal, historical places and people and circumstances. And those issues and those events are focused on the time and the circumstances in which the book was written. And therefore, from our perspective, again, most of those events are in the distant past. Now, I believe that one of the main areas where the futurist method goes astray is on that very point. It violates one of the basic principles of interpreting the Bible, and that is the principle of audience relevance. So, to put that another way, if a person who has no theological training, they've not been in a good, solid Bible teaching church, they go out and buy a Bible, maybe they start watching some, uh, heaven forbid, TV ministers, and they start reading the Bible, they don't know anything about audience relevance. They're not thinking whatsoever about when Paul wrote the epistle to the church at Rome, the book of Romans, what was going on in Rome, why was he speaking these words to them in particular. Uh, When he reads the book of Isaiah, he's not concerned at all with what was going on uh, in the ancient tribe of Judah and the captivity and the judgment of God, all the rest of it. He's just reading it on his own and taking what he wants out of it for himself. Now, I'm not saying that a person can't receive some kind of blessing from the Lord in that kind of a study. But I am saying that that person will completely, almost completely, totally misunderstand God's plan and purpose as it's revealed in Holy Scripture. So in the reading of any book of the Bible, and especially one like the book of Revelation, the reader must discover what the original readers understood those words to mean to them. So the concern of the interpreter, which is you and me, is to understand and, and say the, the grammar of a passage, the, the, the mechanical uh, etymology of the words and that sort of thing. And this is important because this book comes to us in the Greek language. But to understand those things in light of the historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. This just didn't fall out of heaven like the Muslims claim the Quran did in a, in a manner of speaking. This was written in real time and history and space when things were going on. And that leads me then to the second major point, and that's the question of, to whom was this book written? Well, we know from verse 4 of Revelation 1, it was written to seven historical, literal churches. And I want to show you that there are three factors that strongly suggest this preterist, largely past fulfillment position, that it's the most accurate. Revelation 1-4 states that John wrote to a specific church congregation or congregations that existed in that day. And in Revelation 1-11, he names those churches. He's not writing a letter to all the churches everywhere and anywhere. He's writing to those churches. And then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, where we will spend hopefully a lot of time, it contains letters to each of those churches and deals with their specific circumstances. But the next, John wrote to those churches for the purpose, now this may seem ridiculous to even say it, but you have to, he wrote to those churches in order to be understood. John intended that his work be an unveiling, a revealing, an uncovering. He didn't write to obscure the truth, but to reveal it to them. Because they needed to know it, because of their circumstances. And then in Revelation 1-3, It says that he expected his audience to hear with understanding so they might apply the principles and the knowledge he's sharing with them. Now, just listen to this passage. I'm not going to ask you to turn to it, but in the next chapter, in Revelation 2, verse 7, he says to all of the seven churches, and this is a paraphrase, but it gets the point across. He says, 
Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So the purpose of this is not to write something totally bizarre that they could never figure out what was going on. It is meant to be understood by them. But then also, in Revelation 1.9, he said that he was a companion, a partner, a fellow partaker in the same tribulation they were dealing with. John and the seven churches are in the tribulation, a time of persecution apparently, together at the time that he's writing to them. And so this means, first, that when we realize there is in the book an expectation focused directly on the time in which it's written, but then secondly, when we accept the vital importance of audience relevance, well then those things strongly support a preterist and not a futurist view of Revelation. Now, there are two other schools of thought of this that I have not mentioned. It kind of lends some support to them, too. But I'm not going to get into that right now. We're just going to focus on, on this way of thinking about it. And that leads me then to the third major thing, and that is I want to call your attention to three Greek words. You know, we have in the New Testament, <clears throat> the books were written originally in Greek. Now, there are um, Syriac and Aramaic and what's called Peshitta translations of these texts that are very, very old. But from what we know, all of those texts were copied from earlier Greek texts. So we have to know something about Greek words. Let me also add parenthetically that I think here it makes a difference as to what translation you're using. Because the traditional text of the church, it's known variously as either the Textus Receptus or the majority text, which is what the New King James is based on, contains the text of the scripture, of, of the book of Revelation in particular, as it was known and read for over a thousand years. Over 1,500 years, maybe longer than that, among the churches of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've got one of the newer translations, like the ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV, you're going to find there's some passages in this study in Revelation that are missing. They've, they've relegated them to the footnotes. I encourage you, if you're going to study Revelation here with this study, use the New King James Version. Use the Old King James Version. Use the Geneva Bible. Those are the main ones, but the New King James in particular gives you the full traditional text of the book of Revelation. All right, in Revelation 1.1, John states that the prophecies of Revelation would begin to take place in a very short time. And he goes on to emphasize that factor in a variety of ways, and he chooses the manner of his expression to avoid confusion. And this is where these three Greek words come in. First of all, in Revelation 1.1, there's the term, these things will happen soon. That's a rendering of a Greek word, takos. And all of, all of the bona fide Greek lexicons indicate that that word means speed, it means quickness, it means swiftness, it means haste. He uses it in different places in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 3, and also at the end in chapter 22. What he's writing about was going to happen quickly, soon. And then he uses another Greek word, that word ingus, it's pronounced ingus, which is translated as near. He uses it in Revelation 1.3 and 22.10. It indicates a nearness, a closeness in time. And then thirdly, he, he uses a word that, see, that indicates something that's about to take place. And that's the Greek word melo. We transliterate it M-E-L-L-O. So turn to Revelation 2.10 in your Bibles. And again, I'm reading from the New King James. 
He says to these folks at this church, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Now friends, you know, if somebody said, you're about to suffer something, I don't think you'd sit back in your chair and say, well, that, I'm not going to be suffering that for another 2,000 years. <laughs> you would assume somebody's telling you something's going to happen to you pretty quickly and you better be ready for it. Fear none of the sufferings you are about to experience, he said. Is there any doubt that John is referring to something that was immediately coming to pass among the Christians to whom he was writing? Now, turn over to chapter 10, verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things. So in both those verses, uh, 2.10 and 10.4, the writer speaks of things that were soon. They were about to happen, and in both those cases, he's using that Greek term, mellow. And here we need to see that there are some Bible translations and Bible editions of the Bible that don't do a good case of translating that Greek word. Even if, you know, they, they have the word in their text. But look with me at uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, or just listen. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, notice, which shall come upon the whole oikumene, or known world. So he's speaking to one of those seven churches in Asia Minor, and he refers specifically to an hour of trial that was coming on the whole Roman Empire, known world of the day. Now, if you happen to have, I'll say the New American Standard, because it's one of the most literal. It has other problems, but in this case, it's very literal. You'll see that in that translation, it gives the rendering of the Greek word melo more accurately. Listen to it. Because you've kept my word, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon you. Can you see the difference? Somebody says, this shall come upon you, and somebody says, this is about to come upon you. <laughs> There's a difference between those two. And in back in chapter 1, verse 19, that phrase, there are to take place after this, it literally is the things which are about to take place. Now, ask yourself, what would the original readers have thought when they heard that? John strategically places that kind of wording both at the introduction of the book of Revelation, and at the end of the book. He's telling those seven churches to expect those things at any time, in their, in their lifetime, in their, really, much sooner than that even. Now we know very well that there are some among our Christian friends who have, shall we say, misplaced priorities. And what I mean by that is that they are more interested, frankly, in shielding their doctrines than in honoring the teachings of Scripture. And so in this instance, at least, they prefer to redefine the terms of the language and of what the Scripture says in order to guard their theology. So one futurist writer explains this passage in Revelation 1.1. He says, and I quote, The idea is not that the event may occur soon, which is plainly what it means. No, he says, it means that when it does occur, it will happen suddenly. I mean, ask yourself in terms of, say, just the audience relevance part, what consolation would that have offered to those persecuted saints? None at all. Where do we get the slightest idea from the text itself that it's to be understood? Not that it's going to happen soon, but when it does happen, it'll be happening soon. That doesn't make any sense. Interpreting this passage to mean that Jesus will come rapidly some two or three thousand years later in the future, that ridicules the entire historical circumstances. 
No, in the book of Revelation, the advent of Jesus is eagerly anticipated as a deliverance and as a relief. The original audience would not have been consoled to hear that once he started to come, maybe in a couple of thousand years, well, then he would arrive quickly. Now, I want you to hold your place here in Revelation 1. You can turn to this if you want. I'm going to read it to you from Philippians 2.19. Because in this verse, we have another instance of how this Greek word, takos, is being used. Paul says in Philippians 2.19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged. So, following that dispensational writer's interpretation, does that mean that whenever Timothy does come to them, he will come running? You can see how the attempts to get around the obvious meaning of the terms, it only ends up creating distortion and abnormal ways of understanding words. John expected the events he describes in this book to take place soon after he had written them. Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia Minor to tell them things that would happen to them. Happen to them soon. Not soon, 2,000 years later. That's not even soon. To them... The book was a prophecy to them of near future events. To us, it is history. It is past history. But although past, those events still have powerful relevance to us today. That's one of the criticisms that's often aimed at the predator's view. Well, you've emptied this book of all present meaning if all the relevance was to the people back then. Well, we've never said that. It certainly audience relevance is a priority. But that doesn't mean the book was not written for our benefit. A 19th century British scholar said it well, and I'm quoting him here as I wind this up. He said, Revelation from beginning to end teaches two great truths. Christ shall triumph. Christ's enemies shall be overcome. They who hate him shall be destroyed. They who love him shall be blessed unspeakably. He said the doom alike of Jew and of Gentile was then already imminent. On Judea and Jerusalem, on Rome and the empire, on Nero and his admirers, the judgment was going to fall. And then he concluded with this. Sword and fire and famine and pestilence and storm and earthquake and social agony and political terror were nothing but the woes that were ushering in the messianic reign. All things were rapidly passing away. End of quote. My friends, the relevance of the message of the book of Revelation echoes down to the centuries. The events it describes, most of them largely are past. And we can be grateful that they have. Because for the people who lived through these events, it was very challenging, to put it mildly. And so as we go forward in time to our present age, we can take encouragement from how our earliest brothers and sisters in Christ took the message of total victory to heart and persevered into triumph and the spreading of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let us pray.